I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Glad to have you with me tonight. Thanksgiving is coming this week, so let's start out with an appropriate O. Henry story, Two Thanksgiving Gentlemen. Being an O. Henry story, it will have an O. Henry ending, leaving us to question all the assumptions we made along the way. Two Thanksgiving Gentlemen by O. Henry There is one day that is ours. There is one day when all we Americans, who are not self-made, go back to the old home to eat saleratus biscuits and marvel how much nearer to the porch the old pump looks than it used to. Bless the day. President Roosevelt gives it to us. We hear some talk of the Puritans, but don't just remember what they were. But we can lick them anyhow if they try to land again. Plymouth Rocks? Well, that sounds more familiar. Lots of us have had to come down to hens since the Turkey Trust got its work in, but somebody in Washington is leaking out advance information to them about these Thanksgiving proclamations. The big city east of the Cranberry Bogs has made Thanksgiving Day an institution. The last Thursday in November is the only day in the year on which it recognizes the part of America lying across the ferries. It is the one day that is purely American. Yes, a day of celebration, exclusively American. And now for the story, which is to prove to you that we have traditions on this side of the ocean that are becoming older at a much rapider rate than those of England are, thanks to our get-up and enterprise. Stuffy Pete took his seat on the third bench to the right as you enter Union Square from the east at the walk opposite the fountain. Every Thanksgiving day for nine years, he had taken his seat there promptly at one o'clock. For every time he had done so, things had happened to him, Charles Dickensy things that swelled his waistcoat above his heart and equally on the other side. But today, Stuffy Pete's appearance at the annual trysting place seemed to have been rather the result of habit than of the yearly hunger which, as the philanthropists seemed to think, afflicts the poor at such extended intervals. Certainly Pete was not hungry. He had just come from a feast that had left him of his powers largely those of respiration and locomotion. His eyes were like two pale gooseberries firmly embedded in a swollen and gravy-smeared mask of putty. His breath came in short wheezes. A senatorial roll of adipose tissue denied a fashionable set to his upturned coat collar. Buttons that had been sewed upon his clothes by kind salvation fingers a year before flew like popcorn, strewing the earth around him. Ragged he was, with a split shirt front open to the wishbone. But the November breeze, carrying fine snowflakes, brought him only a grateful coolness, for Stuffy Pete was overcharged with the caloric produced by a super-bountiful dinner, beginning with oysters and ending with plum pudding, and including, it seemed to him, all the roast turkey and baked potatoes and chicken salad and squashed pie and ice cream in the world. Wherefore he sat, gorged, and gazed upon the world with after-dinner contempt. The meal had been an unexpected one. 
He was passing a red brick mansion near the beginning of Fifth Avenue in which lived two old ladies of ancient family and a reverence for traditions. They even denied the existence of New York and believed that Thanksgiving Day was declared solely for Washington Square. One of their traditional habits was to station a servant at the postern gate with orders to admit the first hungry wayfarer that came along after the hour of noon had struck and banquet him to a finish. Stuffy Pete happened to pass by on his way to the park, and the seneschals gathered him in and upheld the custom of the castle. After Stuffy Pete had gazed straight before him for ten minutes, he was conscious of a desire for a more varied field of vision. With a tremendous effort, he moved his head slowly to the left, and then his eyes bulged out fearfully, and his breath ceased, and the rough-shod ends of his short legs wriggled and rustled on the gravel, for the old gentleman was coming across Fourth Avenue toward his bench. Every Thanksgiving day, for nine years, the old gentleman had come there and found Stuffy Pete on his bench. That was a thing that the old gentleman was trying to make a tradition of. Every Thanksgiving, for nine years, he had found Stuffy there and had led him to a restaurant and watched him eat a big dinner. They do these things in England unconsciously, but this is a young country, and nine years is not so bad. The old gentleman was a staunch American patriot and considered himself a pioneer in American tradition. In order to become picturesque, we must keep on doing one thing for a long time without ever letting it get away from us. Something like collecting the weekly dimes in industrial insurance or cleaning the streets. The old gentleman moved straight and stately toward the institution that he was rearing. Truly, the annual feeding of Stuffy Pete was nothing national in its character, such as the Magna Carta or jam for breakfast was in England, but it was a step. It was almost feudal. It showed, at least, that a custom was not impossible to New <clears throat> America. The old gentleman was thin and tall and sixty. He was dressed all in black and wore the old-fashioned kind of glasses that won't stay on your nose. His hair was whiter and thinner than it had been last year, and he seemed to make more use of his big, knobby cane with the crooked handle. As his established benefactor came up, Stuffy wheezed and shuddered like some woman's overfat pug when a street dog bristles up at him. He would have flown, but all the skill of Santos Dumont could not have separated him from his bench. Well had the myrmidons of the two old ladies done their work. "'Good morning,' said the old gentleman. "'I am glad to perceive that the vicissitudes of another year "'have spared you to move in health about the beautiful world. "'For that blessing alone this day of thanksgiving "'is well proclaimed to each of us. "'If you will come with me, my man, "'I will provide you with a dinner "'that should make your physical being accord with the mental.' "'That is what the old gentleman said every time.' every Thanksgiving day for nine years. The words themselves almost formed an institution. Nothing could be compared with them except the Declaration of Independence. Always before, 
they had been music in Stuffy's ears. But now he looked up at the old gentleman's face with tearful agony in his own. The fine snow almost sizzled when it fell upon his perspiring brow. But the old gentleman shivered a little and turned his back to the wind. Stuffy had always wondered why the old gentleman spoke his speech rather sadly. He did not know that it was because he was wishing every time that he had a son to succeed him. A son would have come there after he was gone, a son who would stand proud and strong before some subsequent Stuffy and say, In memory of my father. Then it would be an institution. But the old gentleman had no relatives. He lived in rented rooms in one of the decayed old family brownstone mansions in one of the quiet streets east of the park. In the winter he raised fuchsias in a little conservatory the size of a steamer trunk. In the spring he walked in the Easter parade. In the summer he lived at a farmhouse in the New Jersey hills and sat in a wicker armchair speaking of a butterfly, the Ornithoptera amphrisius, that he hoped to find some day. In the autumn, he fed Stuffy a dinner. These were the old gentleman's occupations. Stuffy Pete looked up at him for half a minute, stewing and helpless in his own self-pity. The old gentleman's eyes were bright with the giving pleasure. His face was getting more lined each year, but his little black necktie was in as jaunty a bow as ever and his linen was beautiful and white, and his gray mustache was curled gracefully at the ends. And then Stuffy made a noise that sounded like peas bubbling in a pot. Speech was intended, and as the old gentleman had heard the sounds nine times before, he rightly construed them into Stuffy's old formula of acceptance. "'Thank you, sir. I'll go with you, and much obliged. I'm very hungry, sir.' The coma of repletion had not prevented from entering Stuffy's mind the conviction that he was the basis of an institution. His thanksgiving appetite was not his own. It belonged by all the sacred rights of established custom, if not by the actual statute of limitations, to this kind old gentleman who had preempted it. True, America is free, but in order to establish tradition, someone must be a repetend a repeating decimal. The heroes are not all heroes of steel and gold. See one here that wielded only weapons of iron badly silvered and tin. The old gentleman led his annual protege southward to the restaurant and to the table where the feast had always occurred. They were recognized. Here comes the old guy, said a waiter, that blows that same bum to a meal every Thanksgiving. The old gentleman sat across the table, glowing like a smoked oyster at his cornerstone of future ancient tradition. The waiters heaped the table with holiday food, and Stuffy, with a sigh that was mistaken for hunger's expression, raised knife and fork and carved for himself a crown of imperishable bay. No more valiant hero ever fought his way through the ranks of an enemy— Turkey, chops, soups, vegetables, pies disappeared before him as fast as they could be served. Gorged nearly to the uttermost when he entered the restaurant, the smell of food had almost caused him to lose his honor as a gentleman, 
but he rallied like a true knight. He saw the look of beneficent happiness on the old gentleman's face, a happier look than even the fuchsias and the ornithoptera amphrisius had ever brought to it, and he had not the heart to see it wane. In an hour, Stuffy leaned back with a battle won. Thank ye kindly, sir, he puffed like a leaky steam pipe. Thank ye kindly for a hearty meal. Then he arose heavily with glazed eyes and started toward the kitchen. A waiter turned him about like a top and pointed him toward the door. The old gentleman carefully counted out a dollar thirty in silver change, leaving three nickels for the waiter. They parted as they did each year at the door, the old gentleman going south, stuffy north. Around the first corner stuffy turned and stood for one minute. Then he seemed to puff out his rags as an owl puffs out his feathers and fell to the sidewalk like a sun-stricken horse. When the ambulance came, the young surgeon and the driver cursed softly at his weight. There was no smell of whiskey to justify a transfer to the patrol wagon, so Stuffy and his two dinners went to the hospital. There they stretched him on a bed and began to test him for strange diseases with the hope of getting at some problem with the bare steel. And lo, an hour later another ambulance brought the old gentleman and they laid him on another bed and spoke of appendicitis, for he looked good for the bill. But pretty soon one of the young doctors met one of the young nurses, whose eyes he liked, and stopped to chat with her about the cases. "'That nice old gentleman over there now,' he said. "'You wouldn't think that was a case of almost starvation. Proud old family, I guess. He told me he hadn't eaten a thing for three days.' The next pieces I want to share with you are not specifically about Thanksgiving season, but they come from one of the most generous and grateful spirits I have encountered, a man who finds things to be thankful for wherever he looks. He is Jonathan Sams, an Episcopal priest I had the joy of spending some time with back in the 70s in Illinois. The pieces tonight, by kind permission of the author, come from his 1973 book, Reflections of a Fishing Parson. I'm reminded of that great opening sentence of Norman MacLean's novel, A River Runs Through It, published three years later. In our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. The Grandfathers In the beginning, the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Genesis chapter 1 I call the fish grandfathers. Wading into the river each spring, I begin, under my breath, to sing the song of the grandfathers, calling to them, reminding them who I am, praising them for their goodness to me and to my ancestors, praising God, the source of moments and fish and the great earth. Other fishermen who might hear me might think I was crazy, but then again they might not. Most fishermen are half crazy anyway. They probably wouldn't even notice me chanting to the fish. 
I can remember being six or so, and my father and his friend Dan Gibson coming in from fishing in the Delaware River with a nice string of smallmouths. I was enthralled. They live in the water, I said to myself. I was converted. I don't remember my first fish, but among the earliest was one I hung onto trolling a spoon behind the boat while my father rowed. He was too big for me to handle, so Dad, not too reluctantly, had to take over. It was a big smallmouth, still as impressive in my memory as it was that day on the river. My sister got one by a similar parental assist method a few minutes later, almost identical to mine. I think even then I was aware of the marvelous shape of a fish, how they are so ingeniously equipped to hold themselves motionless in strong current and then dart upstream in a flash of color and strength. What an amazing creature a fish is. When I hold one in my hand, I am often carried away with the wonder of the way it works, the way the different parts fit together and function and belong. I wonder, why doesn't a fish have feathers or feet or wheels? And I answer myself, because he is a fish by God, and that's the reason it all fits together, in my opinion, by God, that is. For many years our family spent the summer at a little cottage on an island in the Delaware, just a few miles above the water gap. It was a little green shack, surrounded by water birches and willows, with a fine view of the uninhabited mountainside on the other bank. I understand that back in the old days the Indians had a sacred place there, right where Broadhead's Creek flows into the Delaware and there are supposed to be old burial mounds and lots of arrowheads and other relics. The Indians had a real sense for those places, places where the air itself seems heavy with God. I can't, of course, say exactly what I mean, but I am convinced those old Indians had an idea of what the real truth is about the world. I mean, they might not have known calculus or how to run a computer or build an A-bomb, but they knew that they were a part of the natural order, not just there to boss it around, and they loved and reverenced the earth. In that place we grew and played and every day fished. Living by a body of water, by the way, engenders a very different approach to fishing from what you have when you have to travel to where you're going to fish. You no longer fish as a busy project. You fish as a part of the natural rhythm of the day. After so many summers on the Delaware, I got so I could almost feel what the fish were doing. A shift in the wind, a certain quality of sunlight in the evening, a shoal suddenly exposed by a drop in the water level. All these things speak to the inner man, to the level of our humanity, which feels a deep kinship with the fish and the sky. In those days, I think I really felt accepted by the river and the grandfathers, and the old Indians, by the earth, and, as I would say it now, by God, the source of all being. In the ensuing years, the same elusive reality has often struck me. On a deer stand in Pike County, Pennsylvania, listening to the November wind on the barren ridges and the harsh jays cry, beneath the mind-boggling sweep of the stars in a cornfield just outside Oberlin, Ohio, 
on the porch of the farm where my sister lives in Vermont, watching a flock of birds fly past in perfect symmetry against the sky, and on a thousand occasions with rod in hand, lovingly coaxing the grandfathers from under their stump or rock, all these occasions have been celebrations, the breath of God, the song of the grandfathers. I will give thanks unto thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Fishing Partners And Absalom said to Hushai, Why did you not go with your friend? From Second Samuel chapter 16 I like to fish with my brother Bob. We have a common understanding of what we are doing, rooted in our past and consciously accepted between us. For us, fishing is a religious act, a sacrament, and the fish and the water and the activity of fishing itself are sacred, vehicles of truth beyond words. We have a kind of natural sense for what the other one is going to do. One day on the White River in Michigan, we worked a brushy bank, wading within two feet of each other, casting in such a way as to cover every snag, every overhanging limb, from every angle and with every possible nuance of current and drift. Three times we had fish, vigorous northerns and bass hooked at the same time. We spoke very little. We just kept playing the fish, releasing them, and working our way on down the stream. It was a kind of unity I have rarely experienced with another human being, on a level beyond words, almost beyond thought. Thinking of it reminds me of another time on the Delaware, when I watched him as he played what turned out to be an 18-inch smallmouth. He was using a spin-cast reel with a faulty drag mechanism so that the fish had a complete free hand to run where it would. It circled the boat, digging and running, making the line whistle in the water. Bob was serious, calm, I would say reverent. When the fish was in the net, huge and spent, Bob spoke to him and said, Peace, brother. Some people might consider that nutty. I consider it beautiful. My father has a friend, Dan Gibson, with whom he used to have a relationship centered around fishing. They had lots of other things in common. They were just getting started in the same profession, which happened to be teaching college English. Their wives were friends, their sons were almost exactly the same age. But fishing was the sign, the visible bond that held them together. When they stopped fishing together, their relationship changed. I have read letters that they exchanged over the years, and I notice how they become more and more centered around professional matters, less and less about plans for fishing trips or reminiscences of past days surf-casting on the Carolina coast. The most recent letters all refer to how they can never seem to get time to do much fishing anymore, and then they stop. They are still friends, just not fishing partners anymore. That goes to reinforce what I was saying before. To share the competence, the sacredness, the discipline of fishing is to enter into a very special kind of relationship. It tells the truth, I believe. Al Harrington is another fishing partner of mine. He is very much from the city and is familiar with streetways and culture. He is very different from me, but I like to watch him work a riffle or a pool. He doesn't just know where the fish are likely to be. 
he knows how to get the lure in just the right spot and with just the right action to get those fish. I don't know where he got it. I guess I'd like to believe he learned some of it from me, but he surely has the feeling for it. Our friend Tom McGuan, a steel worker and another man urbanized in every way but in spirit, sat with me one day at the top of the bank above Broadhead's Creek and watched Al fish the water where the river and the creek converge. He hooked and played several bass, never horsing them, letting them jump on a long line, easing them in just when they were ready. How did he learn that? Tom asked. Then, after a slight pause, I guess it's natural. Competence and inner peace, a sense of reverence and mutual respect, that's what I've shared with a few fishing brothers. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think Tom McGowan was right. It's natural. It's real. And it tells the truth. Smallmouth bass. Now, if I were to choose a fish that I would want most to be, this is it. Once on the Roanoke River in Virginia, I hooked a 12-inch smallmouth and could observe his struggles easily in the clear water. There was a second bass who stayed tight by his side, biting at the lure, trying to dislodge it. Now I have heard it said that fish will do this out of greed, trying to get the food away from the hooked fish. I doubt this. The gyrations of a hooked smallmouth are too strenuous, too frantic. Besides, it just looks like the other fish is trying to help. I think they care about each other in some appropriately fish-like way. I have never caught a smallmouth bass that didn't fight for his life with great dignity and total concentration. I've caught little fingerlings barely an inch long who went through a whole little mini-circuit of bass maneuvers, runs, leaps, the whole thing. Dignity is the word for the smallmouth. When I compete lovingly with them, I feel that I share with their calm self-acceptance their complete lack of pomposity or arrogance. This is all purely subjective, of course, or even ridiculous, some might say. But in my defense, I have to say that religious reality is very hard to talk about. The more I say, the more analytical I get, and the less my words convey the reality of my own experience. This is a real problem for a preacher— it means my sermons get shorter and shorter and tend to be on subjects like the theology of smallmouth bass. The truth is, I believe that it is the earth, history and experience that speaks of God, and ultimately all preaching is really just pointing. Look, there he is, I say, and over there, and here. He is in my words as I form them, in the thoughts that precede them, in the long history that leads up to them, in the pen that writes these words, and in the eyes of you who reads them. What more can I say? So, I'll go bass fishing and praise God. You've been listening to Two Thanksgiving Gentlemen by O. Henry and selections from Reflections of a Fishing Parson by Jonathan Sams. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been For Reading Out Loud. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, happy Thanksgiving, all the best. Music